Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is Joanne Harris. Yes, I'm going to say that again. I've interviewed Joanne Harris, the multi-award-winning author of Chocolat, Joanne Harris MBE. That Joanne Harris. We talk about her writing process, her shed, her favourite brand of notebooks, and how her sense of smell helps to inform her writing. This interview was recorded in mid-September 2021, just over a month after the release of her novel, A Narrow Door. So I'm joined today with Joanne Harris. Joe, hello. Hi, it's great to be here, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. I'm very pleased that you accepted. Now, my very first question, as always, is what are we drinking? We're drinking tea, English breakfast with milk. I was a teacher back in the day, and it's the teachers and the authors cocaine. <laughs> yes. You always have a cup of tea or a pot of tea when you're writing? I've got a pot of tea in my shed normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a cup of tea here because I'm elsewhere because bandwidth is better. But yes, okay. uh, the tea, tea tends to keep me going. It's what I'm used to. Okay. And as you said, it was something that you had as a teacher as well. So it's always been associated with uh, your working drink. Absolutely. Uh, when I was a teacher, I used to carry it about with me. And while I was doing uh, various bits of admin and supervision, I was always seen with a cup of tea in my hand rushing around the corridors. <laughs> now, nowadays, I'm yeah. a bit more sedentary. It's nice. Yes. And my second question is for the guest to describe the location. Now, you said you're not in the shed due to bandwidth. So discuss where we currently are, but then we, I will have questions about the shed as well. Well, I'm actually in so, my daughter's office, but okay. uh, given that she doesn't live here anymore, I've taken it over for the days when I'm not working in the shed. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a little office with a built-in desk and a bookcase and various papers and things that I'm supposed to do. But normally I would work in my shed, which is at the bottom of the garden, which has, again, a desk, an armchair, various bits and pieces that I have picked up on my travels. It was going to be one of those bare monastic workspaces, but I don't think I can do that. It's now full of various kitsch items that I've picked up on my travels and things that I love too much not to be around. I've uh, seen your YouTube channel. It's a beautiful space. and It's very nice. I love how it's developed online on Twitter that every day there's a new description. Today it's a Trullo house in Italy's uh, Itria Valley, built from dry stone, whitewashed with a pointed conical roof. Flowers grow beside the door, hollyhocks and lupins. It's so evocative and it's such a fantastic example of your writing. But I don't know the origin. When did you start these Twitter descriptions? Oh, a very long time ago, pretty much when I started, which was what, something like 10 years ago. And I was having this shed built in the garden. It was on the site of another shed made of wood. And my husband had this one built out of stone. So it's quite a posh shed, but it's still on the footprint of the wooden shed. And I would talk about how it was developing and the things that I was choosing to put in it. And then somehow when it was finished, it took on a personality of its own. And it began to change shape and location according to day and mood. And I would write this little um, sentence in in those days in 140 characters about what exactly the shed was. And sometimes it was a building and sometimes it was a mode of transport. And sometimes it was like the Trullo house, a place I'd actually been, depending very much on what kind of mood I was. 
in. And it became an entry into my creative process. I had to create this little haiku, which was always about the shed, before I would start working. And, and I found that my followers on Twitter, if I didn't do it, would say, are you not in the shed? What's the shed doing? Why have you not said anything about the shed? And I realized that it actually had many more supporters than I had. And so it became very much a kind of daily part of my process without even realizing that was what it was going to be. It, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful series. And I can see why it has its followers and it, its own fans. I'm glad it's come part of your process rather than like an albatross around your neck and a, a chore. I, I think it's almost like it's warming the creative muscle. Yes, I think uh, I that's absolutely what it is. Because I have to get into the zone somehow, it's mm. quite useful, I find, to, to project into something, which is not necessarily the work in progress, just a mode. So it's the dressing room, if you like, before I step out onto the stage. And I think of it that way. That's a great analogy. I love that. Thank you. Now, I want to talk broadly around the origins of any piece of work not where your ideas come from but <laughs> when an idea suddenly grips in your mind are there certain identifiers to you when you're speculating about the world and things that you think this idea would make a good story and is that a character a situation what is it that you know, sort of grabs you about an idea where you go I want to develop this a little further oh it could be anything it could be absolutely anything. It could be a dream that I had. Sometimes I have very articulate narrative dreams that become stories. Sometimes it's something that I've read. Sometimes it's something I've seen on Twitter or on social media or in the news or on TV or an idea when I was just out on a run that just occurred to me or something that springboarded from something that I saw or experienced physically or a feeling, almost anything. And I tend to think that my, my head is a sort of rattle bag of these ideas and I pick them up and I don't, most of the time, I don't think, ah, this is a story or this is part of a story. Sometimes I will think that. And sometimes if it's something particularly striking, I'll think, yes, that belongs in a story. But then it will rattle around sometimes for years before I find the place that it fits. And sometimes I never will find the place. And so I have various notebooks, which I carry around with me to write these ideas, because actually you always think you're going to remember them, but you don't. And so I've got notebooks with all kinds of cryptic things written in them that I actually don't remember anymore, except the thing that I wrote, which can be infuriating, but also quite useful if I'm looking for something and I don't quite know what it is. With these notebooks, do you find that they tend to be filled with lines of dialogue or are they descriptive passages they could or be just, yeah. they could be almost anything I've got one here actually I, I wonder what's in it it looks like quite an old one the problem with my notebooks is that they can sometimes look very similar and so very often I've got things written down and I think this is 10 years old here I've got something about oh I've got something about language it says svaha which is a North American Indian word the feeling of having set into motion a course of events for which you can see the outcome, but not affected. For instance, letting fly an arrow and realizing that at the last moment, you've actually shot it at somebody who is on our side. <laughs> I'm, I must have picked this up from somebody. I have no idea who it was, but it's a wonderful word. I've never yeah. yet found a reason to use it, but yeah, it's in there. And the book is all full of little pictures and some, oh, here we go. I've got train overheard on a train to London 
I left Jason's fleece on the settee. That cracked me up because Jason and his fleece obviously are not the Jason's fleece we're thinking about, but it's a piece (laughs) of dialogue. I'm not sure I will ever be able to use it. Oh, and again, on the same train, a man with a Louis Vuitton laptop bag and horn-rimmed glasses carrying a satchel with a riding whip sticking out of it. And this was obviously somebody I'd seen on the train. And then a bit later on in the book, what have I got here? I've got various talks that I've and various ideas that I've illustrated in this. I'm showing oh, yeah. you, but you won't show on the postcard yeah, little great, pictures. Great for audio, but <laughs> oh, and genius yeah. idea it says. Let's see if it is in, the, in a genius idea. Oh, story: the murderer's apprentice. I don't know what that refers to because I don't know the story and I haven't written it. Genius idea: trust in the stars. The new astrology personality testing according to what was in the charts the week of your birth. So Abba in the ascendant would be somebody who was born when Abba was in the charts and it was mounting and this sort of thing. So what would you do with that? I have no idea. Then I've got bits and pieces. Oh, I've just got here. I've just got automatic duck written. I have no idea what that's about. I don't know anything about why I wrote this, but I do have a picture of the Michelin man and a comment about London and oh it's very hot that's all oh weird question if you jumped off a tall building wearing your iPod how much of your favorite song would you hear before you hit the ground that's a rather dark thought but yes my my little notebooks are full of stuff like this and various again planned speeches to various groups this one's about words for obviously something in Ireland, something here about the Pied Piper, who's the perfect metaphor for our relationship with storytellers. I've written, we enjoy stories, but mistrust the subconscious. Artists exist outside of society, wielding the voodoo of art. It's exactly the kind of thing that I probably would have written somewhere in a speech about paying the writer and so on and so forth. So I do this all the time and I have this kind of scattered series of ideas either written down or just rattling about in my head until they find a home are you very particular about the uh, brand of pens and notebooks that you use or is it just whatever's nearest to hand mostly they are black moleskin notebooks and they're all identical which is why I can never tell one from the other and I'm always losing them but yes I do like them I like the feel of them and I like the fact that they they slip into a back pocket which is where I tend to carry them and also the fact that do you know what I have a whole shelf of notebooks too beautiful to use and I know I'm not going to use them and they're presents from various people and they're just too lovely so I don't actually use them for work what I do is Generally, if a charity approaches me and asks me for something special, I will write out a story in one of these notebooks and maybe do some little doodles around it and and give them that to auction off because signed copies of books are like 10 a penny. There's no point giving them to a charity auction. So I, I sometimes do that with them. And the rest of them just sit on the shelf and look beautiful and slightly accusing because they know that I'm never, never going to use them for work. I find that with writers that you have your particular type and it can be something that's functional rather than beautiful, like a black moleskin. And I hear this a lot that, yeah, the beauty of notebooks as gifts and pens as well, sometimes a beautiful pen. It's just like, well, I can't write my shitty ideas with a pen this nice. Uh, I'll just use a biro. (laughs) Yeah. I Um, I like these for signing. They are V7 
signing pens, high-tech ballpoints. Okay. I like rollerball pens because I have a slightly funny way of writing and um, they are the things that, that write most smoothly. And I also quite like them because you can draw with them and I'm always doodling in notebooks and drawing passengers on trains. It seems like a long time since I was actually in a train, but uh, I get a lot of good ideas on trains. Trains are a very romantic form of travel. I think long distance on a train, because you can walk around, you can meet people, there can be a diner's car. It's very good for people watching. Aeroplanes, there is more noise than is ever portrayed on any form of media, like sort of cinema and things like that. I'm married yes. to a man who won't fly. And so we know all about trains in Europe. And we oh, did really? a, lovely, a lovely trip that went from London to Paris to Rome and then to Syracuse in Sicily. Oh, wow. And the train is a sleeper and it actually goes on the boat during the night. So oh, at wow. about three in the morning, you hear the train change and go onto its track on the boat and you wake up and have breakfast in Syracuse. It's wonderful. And did you sleep well? You know, was it very apparent that it's like, oh, no, we're now on water? Or was it a complete magical, we were on one form of land last yeah, night and now we're on a different land? It was lovely. And no, I didn't feel it at all. It was very nice to sleep on a train. I think trains are quite soporific. But also, yeah. I think the thing about traveling by train is that you retain some of the sense of distance that you've traveled. Mm, yes. And you can appreciate the countryside and it takes its time. And so, the end destination is, is, seems more worth it somehow. Do you travel a lot for work, you know, in promotion tours, or is it just you'd like to take a break away and you'd like to vacation and possibly research stories? I've never traveled to research a story, but I do travel quite a lot for work. I used to anyway, go on tour in various countries, sometimes to America or Australia, um, usually also around Europe. Italy is a particular favourite of mine, partly because Italy was the first country to publish chocolat, long before England or the United States. And I've always had a very strong, very appreciative readership there. So every time I have a book out, I usually tour Italy. And I should be doing that right now with my book Honeycomb, but uh, sadly, I'm not quite able to yet. So I've been imagining the places that I might go based on places that I've been before. That's lovely. And I, I, yeah, I had no idea of the, the popularity in, in Italy. Is that somewhere that you're tempted to write more about and feature in your books? Oh, I wish I could. I really do. I was once offered by a rather wonderful, handsome gentleman of a certain age. I was offered his castle or a wing in his castle as long as I wrote something about his region. And he said, oh, you can come here. You can stay as long as you like. You could stay a year. You could bring your family. And I just thought about the logistics of doing that. And at the time, I had a young daughter who needed to go to school and I had to refuse that. But I think he understood, and as do other Italians who have asked me the same question, that actually I need to have more than just a passing knowledge of a country if I'm going to write about it. And I just can't do it. I can write about a certain part of England with a sense of knowledge and intimacy, and I can do that with certain parts of France too. But even though I must have been to Italy at least a dozen times, maybe more. I don't think that's enough. I would have to live there for years to really get the sense of what it's like and to be able to speak with it with authority about it. Because actually, I think that when I do write about places, they are as important to the plot as characters. And so I can't just choose them for the scenery, even though I would quite like to. 
and it would give me lots of opportunities to go and live in Italian chateaus and things, but that's not going to happen. It's not me. With research, are there aspects of your time in Italy that has informed either character or elements of other stories? Because you've written fantasy and, well, you've written Doctor Who, you've also written science fiction. So when you have the opportunity to write uh, in other worlds, in in non-Earth places, is there a temptation you can then use the, the cultural aspects of other places that you visited? Oh, yes, I think that's certainly a possibility. And and everything that I write is enriched by everybody I meet and the places that I go and the things that I experience. And it's almost inevitable that will happen at some point. I can't always plan it, which is why I don't go somewhere to research what it's like. Mm. I will write about it sometimes much later because the story demands something that I learned in that place. It's never the other way around. I, I, you know, I'm not the kind of author who can apply for a travel grant and go to Hawaii or something because I'm going to write a book about it, much as I would yeah. love to do that. I, and I have written about various places that I've visited. I think in my rune books, I got a lot of the feel of what it was like to live in that world that I'd constructed that was not quite like our world, but was close enough through going to places like Norway and Sweden and understanding what it's like to have proper snow and ice and real Mm. cold and what that does. I wouldn't have been able to write about it quite in the same way if I hadn't seen it and experienced it. And there's all kinds of things. I mean, right now I'm I'm writing one of my Loki books, which tie into the Rune books because basically Mm. they're all part of the same series. And I'm setting some of it in South America because because I recently travelled to a place where I could use the information and the feel that I got to write about that. Yeah, and so things do kind of enter the writing, sometimes by stealth in this way. And, and sometimes, I mean, I will write, I mean, for instance, I have written about Italy in short stories. I can do it in a short story, which doesn't need the kind of big knowledge that a book would need. So I, I wrote, for instance, I wrote a story called Fish when I was in Naples, And it was set in Naples and it was about Naples and it was about Neapolitan food and Neapolitan people because I was in a situation where I was just surrounded by those things and it was easy to write a short story. Of course, having written one short story about Italy, my Italian people would quite have liked me to have written a whole book. And I said, no, I'd I'd have to have lived in Naples for some time for that. And there's no temptation that you would want to live there for a prolonged period of time because... You grew up in Yorkshire. You live in Yorkshire now. Yes, I do. I live about, what, 15 miles from the place I was born. I haven't gone very far. And yes, I love it here. I haven't been seriously tempted to live anywhere else. You never know what might happen. And returning then to your writing space and your shed, your husband uh, got built for you and how that's uh, developed as your writing space. How much of your working day is spent there? Maybe not just writing, maybe you're just thinking and and plotting in your head, but is it a sense of feeling of, I'm in the mood to write, I should probably pop to the shed, or do you set a time go, I need to be in the shed by a certain time today? I don't really do either of those things. I think that when I was a teacher, I had such a structured day, and I knew when I was going to do certain things and when I was going to stop. I think when I quit teaching, I created my own rhythms of work and I realized that I didn't have to structure my day anymore. And actually, I didn't work terribly well in a structured day. And so I tend to find that 
I use what time is available when I feel like writing, which is most of the time, actually, because I like what I do. So the shed is, if you like, it is a comfortable place to go when I want to work. And so I've made it a rule that I only go there when I'm working so that I actually have a commute. It's not a very long one. It's just a walk up the garden. But there is a physical space where I can go, right, now I'm in the zone. Now it's time for me to work. And so I don't just sit around reading or thinking about things. If I am putting things together in my mind, I'm usually out doing something, walking you know, in the garden, something like this, because actually a lot of a writer's work gets done in other places to a desk. It's just the writing bit that happens at the desk, but the thinking part and the planning part and the getting ideas part, you can do that anywhere. And I usually find that it doesn't help me to be in my workspace when I'm not actually physically working. So there's that. But I think it's psychologically very useful for somebody to have a designated writing area, whatever it is. I mean, when I didn't have any money and I was living in a little house and I was sharing my workspace with all my daughter's toys and having to sit on the floor because I didn't have a desk, I still had a designated workspace. It wasn't much, but it was, it was there. And it gave me that kind of psychological sense of ownership, even though it was just a place where I put my laptop and the things that made my imaginary desk appear. On that, I saw on your YouTube channel, you mentioned and you showed on camera that you have two items that you take with you when you're on tour so you can write. Are those still the pebble and the coaster? Yes. And how did it develop to have those two items? And why do they resonate to you that this is my writing place? Well, I think that for a start, I'm very good at visualising things. It's part of how my imagination works. But there are certain things that will help me establish ownership of a space. And I find that when I don't have a designated workspace, I tend to, to not work terribly well. And because, certainly before lockdown, I used to spend a lot of time in hotel rooms and in places which were essentially very neutral alien spaces, it was useful to have something familiar there. And I had worked this out long before I'd been on tour anywhere because I'd worked this out in a, a time and a place where just being a professional author was a very distant dream. But I found that if I had a desk which had something familiar on it, in this case, this pebble and this little terracotta coaster with Carpe Diem written on it where I can put my tea mug, I found that all of a sudden I had a sort of imaginary desk and it was portable. Because if I had these two objects, I could make it anywhere. So on a table in a hotel room, on the floor somewhere, on, on the kitchen table. And I found that it helped me focus because I had these two tangible objects to designate my workspace. And I still use that technique. It's a wonderful technique. And when you are writing, do you write until you feel that you're at a natural break point to walk away? Or do you have a time limit or a word count limit? How, how do you know when to stop for the day? I don't set limits and I don't count words. So I find that usually what I do has a relatively natural rhythm. Unless it's interrupted by somebody, I will usually stop at a natural break. Usually the end of a chapter, I don't write very long chapters, so that's always achievable. But what I do is I will come into my shed, I will generally write what the shed is doing, and then I will get down to it. I will read aloud what I wrote the previous day or during the previous session. During that time, I will 
edit whatever needs editing there. And usually it's just a baby polish. Sometimes it's something a little more. But by the time I've done that, I will be in the right space to start writing. So I will then write whatever section of whatever book I happen to be writing at that time. I will generally realize that there's a natural break there and I will stop. And sometimes I'll go beyond the natural break and I'll go to the next natural break. Some days I'll write all day. Most days I'll stop around one because after that, my attention span tends to go. And so I might do other things and there's all kinds of other things that a writer has to do, but general housekeeping and admin and social media and email and editing and stuff that doesn't require a lot of creative energy. And, and that tends to be my break after which like I will the, just do whatever. And do you like the closure of uh, a full stop? It's definitely an end natural break rather than mid sentence. Cause I know some writers like to leave it. So there's a hook for them to get onto when they come back for the next day. <laughs> I would never finish mid-sentence because I wouldn't remember what I was supposed to end the sentence with. So no, I wouldn't do that. Um, although it's not always a full stop. Sometimes it's a dash. Sometimes it's a dot, 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 because I actually quite like those. Do you try and write every day? You, you said that you really enjoy writing, so you, you do write uh, frequently, but how do you work through if there are uninspired periods? So if you're at a point where the words just aren't coming or you suddenly realize, actually, I haven't been to the shed for a couple of days. Are there any sort of things that you do to try and motivate yourself or is it just a waiting game? I generally find that it helps me if I do write something every day. I think this is because nine tenths of what happens at the desk and the rest of it happens in my head. And if I write just a small amount every day, it keeps the stuff that's in my head there. And it means that my, my head is still in the right space, even though I'm not necessarily writing a lot. And so I tend to make it a rule that I try to write 300 words a day, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, because that's so small and because that's achievable. It's something that I'm likely to keep doing. And it just keeps me in the zone. It means that the headspace doesn't get interrupted by other things. Generally, on days when I'm really not inspired and it really doesn't work, I have learned not to beat myself up about it and to go off and do something else because sometimes it's your body's way of going, you know what, you've been in this shed for too long. You are getting stale. You need to get out and do things and read more, watch movies, go for a walk, do this kind of thing. Because actually all these things, because they are good for our actual physical energy, they're also good for our creative energy. If I'm not sure if it's still on the cusp and yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going, but I know I want to because I've, I've read the bit aloud that I needed to read and I'm there in the zone, but there's something that's lacking. I tend to use scent because I, I have synesthesia and I mostly experience the world through colours and scents. I have this habit and I've had it for some years now of attaching a scent to a specific book. And this is really useful when I'm moving around, because even when I've not got my portable desk, scents are so uniquely portable that all it really takes is a spritz of something. And if that's the scent that I associate with that book and with nothing else, then somehow emotionally it can draw me into the zone. I learned this trick from a musical theatre performer. And I realised that quite a lot of stage performers do this. In fact, I think a lot of the time, I think being a writer is, is very like being a performer in a lot of ways. We have to get into these characters somehow. We have to understand how characters work. We have to understand how they inhabit their world. There's a book by Stanislavski, the great theatre guy. It's called uh, An Actor Prepares. 
It's an extremely useful book for writers too. It has a lot of tricks, including that one, about getting into character. And with me, because scent is so important, I've found it a really good entry point into books. And particularly when I'm writing more than one book at once, it helps to distinguish one train of thought from another. And with your Loki book that you're writing at the moment, is um, can you tell us what scent uh, you've attached to that book? I'm using a Chanel scent called Boy, which I've actually used for, for my other Loki books. It's, it's a really good one. It, it's a, a kind of fresh unisex one with a lavender base and some wood in it and, and quite a good chunky aromatic base with some florals in the heart of it. And I, I, I really like that one. And so you've, you've got a small bottle that you'll just spray when you're struggling or at the start of a writing session? Oh, I'll wear it. Li- oh, I'll wow. wear it. And that will be what, that will be the character I am inhabiting that day. Nice. I'm not sure it's the scent that Loki would wear, but <laughs> it is the scent that I attach to these books. And the more I think about them and the more I associate them with the scent, the easier it is to get back into the world of those books. And there have been four now, and this is the fifth one. And, and yeah. so it becomes a familiar ritual and a familiar world, because although I'm enlarging that world all the time, every time I write a new book, I'm also familiarizing myself with what I've already done. And it does help. It helps me enormously. I, I like the idea of it's the scent you wear to meet Loki. Is this something that you've used for every single book that you've had published? Or is this something that has only developed in the last few years? No, I've been using this for a very long time. I don't think it was every single one. I don't think I did it for the first two, but I definitely did it for Chocolat and Beyond. That's really cool. And... With It's a silly question with everything that's going on in the world, but having major life events impact writing, certainly you've had a, a little more than most in the 2020 and uh, you know, start of this year. Has that had a noticeable impact on uh, your writing and how you structure your day? Are you writing less or are you writing more? Is your style of writing changing in any way? I think my style of writing is at the same time fixed because it's part of my personality, but always in flux, because actually everybody is evolving and changing all the time. And so there is that, but there are elements of my writing which are part of my personality, which won't change. But there are choices that I make about what I want to write about and how I want to do that, which obviously are in evolution. Lockdown was a funny time, because for the first time in 20 years, I didn't have to tour. I wasn't doing festivals. I had a lot more time to spend working. But on the other hand, there was this sense of enclosure, this sense of of restriction, and obviously the the, the kind of anxiety of what was happening outside. I found that I, I was able to work, which was good because a lot of my friends and colleagues in the business found it very difficult to concentrate. I found actually that it was a bit of an escape for me and that going into the shed and working was the one predictable, reasonably predictable, solid thing that I could do every day that would ground me and that would give me a routine. And I hadn't had one before because I'd had so many interruptions. It wasn't as if I could say, right, I will have the next three months to write a book. This never happened. There would always be something that I would have to do, some place I would have to go. And so in some ways, I've been more productive than ever. And then, of course, I was diagnosed with cancer and I had to go through this procedure of surgery and chemo and radio. But again, even though actually that does eat up enormous amounts of your time, I found that 
the writing was the thing that grounded me and the thing that I could go back to and the, the normal thing that I could do. And so I've been doing this all the time. And I'm aware that I'm speaking from a place of immense privilege because I am in a job which doesn't require me to go into an office. Um, I actually can self-isolate because given that my immunity is still probably at rock bottom, I ought to be doing that. But it's also possible for me to do it. And I've got space. I've got this huge space to inhabit, which is marvelous. And, and again, it's, I'm, I'm very lucky to have this. And so I think I'm not, I've not been in the worst position of any author in the world. No, and I'm glad that you finished your treatment now. I have correct? indeed. As, as you can oh, see, I have my eyebrows back. And, you do indeed. And I've You're even got some well. hair, although I could still do a passable Charlize Theron in, oh, uh, yes. in Mad Max, Mad Max. 4. <laughs> well, I quite like there it, you actually. Yeah, no, it looks, looks really good. <laughs> but I guess you've always had not this short hair, but you have had short hair. So I think I have in the um, past. I've had short yeah. hair, long hair, and, and hair all in the middle. Yeah. And my hair is, is yeah. I find that I tend to gravitate towards the hairstyle I imagine the characters in my book having. So this sometimes means that I go through odd phases of needing, I think I've got restless hair, actually, that's what it is. I have restless hair syndrome, so it, it's never completely recognisable. And so will this hairstyle uh, inform your Loki book? Do you feel it is, or is this one time when you're going to separate your hair from the character? Actually, it's quite useful because some of my characters do have shaved heads because I'm using the Norse pantheon and the, the South American, the Mayan pantheon, and I'm bringing them together. And so I've got quite a lot of people with shaved heads there because yeah. the Mayans did tend to do this. Of course, yeah. Well, I'm glad it, it has formed a, a part of your research. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, there's the old adage, writing is rewriting. I'm interested in once you've done a first draft, how many times do you revisit it? Or do you feel very confident in getting your editor to read your first draft or do you have beta readers what is your rewriting process well it's changed over the years but not drastically sometimes specific books require more rewriting and some of them I tend to find that because of my reading aloud and editing as I go along which is a rolling process the line by line stuff is usually pretty clean so by the time I've got a first draft what needs to be done at that point is usually restructuring or just making sure that things are in the right place. And occasionally I treat books a bit like Rubik's Cubes and move things around so that they follow in a more logical way or in a better way to suit the plot. When I have got what I think of as a dirty first draft, I will then send it to my agent and to my editor, who will then send me their thoughts. My editor has beta readers, usually of several generations. What I like best is to know that the book has been read by somebody perhaps over 50, and then somebody else between 30 and 50, and then somebody else maybe in their 20s, so that I can see how the responses are working. For instance, the Loki books are a case in point. Testament of Loki went down terribly well with the 20, 30-somethings, but the people older than that didn't really understand it because it was not within their experience of fantasy. And it was an interesting thing for me to think of my reader demographic and how that would work. It doesn't actually affect what I write, but it, it does sometimes affect who I talk to and how I present it and who I tour to and what events I go to. I'm much more likely to go, let's say, to Fantasycom with a Loki book than with a Chocolat book, even though those books are also, to a certain extent, fantasy. 
So that's useful. And nowadays, I always run my book past my daughter, who I, I think of as my secondary editor. And I pay her for this. She's done freelance editing in the past, and she's got a very keen eye. And she's also a very good sensitivity reader. She will point out if she thinks that something I've said is problematic or needs clarifying or is, is in some way inappropriate. And because she's extremely good at this and she's from a generation that questions a lot of things about race and gender and acquired prejudice and subconscious bias, because she's thought about this a lot more than I would have done at her age, I trust her judgment more than I do my own in this. And so I will let her have a go at it as well. And then I will rewrite the book and insert what's needed. And then usually that's it. So it's these two, two or three goes is usually enough. Occasionally, in the past, I've had to re-edit for my American public and my publishers. I don't like having to do this, but sometimes I've had to. It's never yeah, comfortable. So one of my favourite books of yours is Blackberry Wine. Oh, well, and that was course, a case in that, point. Yes, for our audience who uh, may not be privy, because that was quite a while ago. Do you want to tell us about that and what happened there? That was over 20 years ago, and I was very inexperienced and very anxious and Blackberry Wine had already come out in England and in several European countries. And my American editor said, oh, we don't want to publish it this way. We want you to put some changes in. And I said, why? Because it, it's been fine elsewhere. And there was a, a main concept, a singular concept inside this book that they wanted me to remove. And I did. I wrote a different version of the book, effectively. I changed the first chapter. I messed around with the narrative. I introduced all sorts of things to make it makes sense. So I, I effectively had two versions of the, the same book, and one was the American version, one was the English version. And I always felt uncomfortable about doing this, and I swore that I would never do it again. And much later, when my book Blue-Eyed Boy came out over here, and I ran it past my American publishers, and they lifted their hands with horror and said, oh, we can't publish it like this because it's too dark, it's too difficult, it's too challenging. I just said, don't then. And they didn't, which was fine. But no, it wasn't something that, that I would ever want to do now. And, and I wouldn't give that advice to anybody just starting off in the business. You just not to rewrite a book you feel happy with and you have already sent out into the world just because somebody wants to exercise power over you, which I think is probably what was happening. So what for you makes a good editor? Because obviously if there's going to be some people like uh, your daughter and your current editor who will give you notes and you will rewrite based on theirs. But there's also people where you can push back and actually say, I, I disagree. I, I, yes. I'm happy with this. So where's the balance in that relationship when you think it's good, when you're willing to take on that criticism? I think it has to be a relationship based on trust and knowledge of the other person. I think you have to know each other. You have to understand each other. You have to speak the same language. What I find particularly bothersome and particularly now because now I've got a certain profile and editors have slightly changed their tactic with me and I don't like it which is one of the reasons that I use my daughter because she isn't like this and they tend to be quite flattering and they tend to send you three pages of how much they loved your book before actually getting down to the bit they want you to edit. I find this profoundly annoying and I would much rather they just told me what they wanted and that they weren't afraid to speak their minds about things, because actually an editor is there to see the things that you haven't seen, 
to look at something in a critical way, obviously it's good when they get you and they like your work, but sometimes work needs to have work done on it. And so it, it's a fine line. I welcome honesty and transparency and bluntness from an editor, but I also like the editor to like what I'm doing, to understand what I'm doing, and not just to be thinking about what it means in terms of sales. But yes, it's important that the editor should be able to say, that's not working. You need to fix this. Sometimes they will tell you how to fix it, but I find that very rare. Most of the time they go, I don't know how you're going to fix this problem, but I know you will. And, and then usually, yes, I do find a way. And I, I usually see. Now, the thing about editing is that nobody likes to be told that there's something wrong with the thing they just finished. Yeah. It's never great. And reading a set of editorial notes invariably puts your back up. It doesn't matter who you are. I, yeah. I, I always go through a phase of looking at the editorial notes and going, what do you know? Nothing, you fool. How dare you, How dare you criticize my, my, my marvelous prose? You have to go through that. You have to thank the editor, say, thank you for your notes. I will take them on board. I will get back to you in due course. Then you have to sit and wait for them to filter through. And sometimes that takes time. I know that with me, I really like to have three months to properly think about what's been said and to do the rewriting that needs to be done. Not everybody has the luxury of that time, but to me, it's really useful because actually to do any kind of rewriting, you need to have an objective view which means hearing criticism, understanding it, letting it filter through all the layers of your ego. And we all have them and we all need an ego to write books, but we also need to put the ego on a leash from time to time and make sure that legitimate criticism gets through. And then when that time has passed, I usually look at the notes and I think, yeah, maybe you got a point there. Yeah, you probably got a point there. Not sure about that point there. And actually, there are moments at which when I'm still not sure whether they have a point, usually this is the point at which other voices become really handy. I mean, for instance, again, in, in the Testament of Loki, I had something that I knew was going to be divisive. And it was entirely a generational problem. A generation that had not been brought up on immersive computer games just didn't get the opening of that book at all. They just didn't get it. The ones that did got it, liked it. And so I just had to look at the different voices and some of them were going, this isn't going to work. I don't get this. I wouldn't buy this. And others were going, this is great. This is really new. This is amazing. And, and so I took a view and I thought, okay, these criticisms, they are based on who the person is. They're not based on what the book is. Therefore, I am going to ignore those criticisms because I don't think it's my target audience for this book. And it didn't feel right for me anyway, but I did think about it and I did take it on board. And it was useful to have that feedback. In the end, I decided not to do anything about it because it would have so destroyed the heart of the book that I would have had to have just put it back together in a completely different way. It wouldn't have been the same thing. So I thought I'm going to send it out into the world as it is for whoever will love it to love it. And the rest maybe, well, maybe they'll like the next one. And when you have finished a book, is there a moment of reflection? How long do you take from finishing a, a book and stepping away from it to moving on to the next project? Do you like to take a break <laughs> in between or is it literally the following day? Well, usually it's not even that because I'm usually working on more than one project at once. I generally do this because I'm not one of those authors who plans very intricately ahead in a book because 
I have to feel my way into the world of a book, understand the characters and their voices, give time for developments and surprises and twists and reversals to happen. And of course, if I am wanting to surprise the reader, then I have to surprise myself at least on some level. And so I don't, I deliberately don't think too far ahead about where things are going to go. I tend to follow the characters and, and how they determine the course of the plot. And sometimes that takes time. And sometimes it means that I have to give a break to a book because I literally don't know what happens next or because I have to do a bit of research. Just because the rhythms with which I write have reached a point at which I can give something a break and move to something else. Because I don't like to be left with nothing to do and because I know that sometimes these breaks can be quite extended. It can take me a while. I can write the first half of a book and not pick it up again for a year. So what am I going to do during that time? I have to do something else. So I, I usually have a secondary and sometimes a tertiary project. And very often I will do a little rolling kind of movement whereby I'll do six weeks on one thing, then maybe six weeks on the other, then go back to the other thing with a bit of objectivity, look at it, make sure it works, it's balanced, and then off again for a while. And, and that's how I do it. And so I never really have that break. Yeah, I'll heave a deep breath when something's finished and maybe open a bottle of champagne, but I, it doesn't necessarily mean that I can stop thinking about whatever is my work in progress, because there always will be a work in progress. So you said earlier that when you've uh, finished your dirty first draft, it goes off to your agent. I guess if you've got a few projects on the go, it's almost until they get that email or that manuscript through to them, they don't know what you're about to finish. I mean, <laughs> that's what that sounds. It's well, like, which book yeah. are we getting? Usually I try to make it clear which one I'm finishing and which is my main work in progress. And I usually try to give them some idea of when they can get it. I can't always be absolutely positive about that because that isn't the way I work. And I've tried to explain to them that, you know, giving me deadlines is not going to make it better. It's just going to make me more anxious and that's not necessarily going to help. But yeah, usually I can say, I think I'll probably have finished this book by the end of next year, or I'll probably be able to give you this then. And I guess, as you said, deadlines aren't helpful. Are you working almost to spec rather than with a publisher on an agreed uh, delivery? Is it that you're giving it to the agent to then sell on to a publisher, or do you have an extremely understanding publishers? Who well, I've got just an understanding like... publisher. I, they they okay. usually know one of the things that I'm working on and not the other. So usually if I sign, let's say, a two-book deal, and a two-book deal tends to be as much as I'm likely to give to a publisher – because that's the longest I want to stay attached to a publisher before, before kind of reassessing where I am and making sure that I'm in the right place. So I will go, okay, I'm thinking of writing, shall we say, another St. Oswald story or another Chocolat story. I have some of that. This is the plot that I know of so far. This is how it starts. So that will be my book one. And then there will be another untitled book two, which could be anything. And that tends to be what they sign a book deal on nowadays. I usually, I try to make the first one sound attractive. I usually have something fleshed out and something that, that is a bit of a teaser for them and, and will give them a good idea of where to place the book and what genre it's going to be in because I don't always, my books don't always sit comfortably within the predictable genre area that many writers do have and and. This is entirely my fault because uh, I don't think any publisher really enjoys this. And it, it, it tends to be a bit of an insecure thing for a publisher to not know whether their author is going to write a thriller 
or a fantasy book or a magic realist book or a historical or whatever. It's It, it must be awkward. And I'm aware that I am awkward and that it's not necessarily the way to make a bag full of money to keep writing different things all the time. The, the real clever thing to do is to try and become a brand. And, and it's never something that has appealed to me. Yeah, I, I think part of your appeal is the fact that you are so broadly talented in many genres and that you can't be pinned down. But are you comfortable in promoting your own work then? Or have you had to get comfortable, <laughs> like you say, making like the first story appeal to the publishers? How's your skills at promotion developed? They've got better over 20 years, but I'm still a bit gauche about promoting myself. I find it quite difficult to go, I did this and I think it's fantastic and you should read it. It's really hard. When I was a teacher, I was very good at talking about other people's work and enthusing about their work. But when I started off, I was extremely shy and reluctant to talk about my work. And it, it, yeah, I get it. It's hard. It's hard. It gets easier the more you do it. But I still have to remind myself that there are things that I do or things that I tend to do that I shouldn't. I did some uh, very early on. I did some media training, thanks to my agent, who was a rather redoubtable old lady called Serafina, who, who just looked at me and said, you're impossible, of course, but we might be able to do something with you. <laughs> I think she never did do anything with me, and she always <laughs> thought I was impossible. But, but she introduced me to a friend of hers who filmed me and who also showed me footage of myself on various media and said, OK, you do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't. God, you're sitting next to this interviewer and you can tell that you hate him because you're doing this. You mustn't do those things. And also you mustn't keep putting yourself down the way you do. You know, you keep saying things like I've written this book, but it's not very good. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Look people in the eye, sit up straight. And it was actually quite useful. I needed somebody to shake me up a bit because actually nobody teaches you this in the book world. Everybody warns you about failure. Everybody warns you that it's very hard to get published. It's very hard to get an agent that even if you do, your book may not take. But nobody actually says, huh, one day you may be wildly successful and you won't know what to do. So here's how you approach it. Yeah, I, I learned all that the hard way and did some very bad interviews and some very bad TV and some very bad press and, and have learned over the years to be a little better. And how has your view of the literary marketplace evolved over time? I mean, you know, the marketplace has evolved, but what's your perception of it, how it's changed since you started, how much more is online and uh, you know, how books are promoted today? How do you feel it's changed? Oh, it's changed enormously, of course, because the whole, my first book, which was long before Chocolat, was published before the digital revolution, before eBooks, before the internet. And, and actually, I mean, there are huge numbers of, of possibilities for young writers and for writers who don't want to go down the traditional route or who can't go down the traditional route. There are lots of ways to publish, to be seen, to acquire a readership. In some ways, it's much more inclusive than it was. On the other hand, when we look at conventional publishing, it's much less inclusive than it was. It's much more driven by anxiety and the desire for more sales, which means that it's become very risk averse, which means that there is a reduction in the, the number of mid-list writers that they'll take. In fact, I mean, as far as I can see, the mid-list has almost disappeared. There is a tendency to go for people who are celebrities and who are not really writers in their, their primary role. 
because there's a feeling within traditional publishing that these people will already have an audience and that those people will be buyers of books. That's not always true at all, but it's led by fear. I think big publishing needs to understand that if you refuse to take risk, then you will never get the big gains because if, yeah, you can gamble, you can take a punt on an unknown writer and yes, maybe the writer will tank, but also maybe they will be the next big thing. You don't actually know. You have to take the risk so that you can then reap the benefit. And I don't think they're doing this and big publishing is going very stale. And I think that this is going to mean that they will either have to rethink their approach or within five, 10 years, they will effectively be replaced by something else. Yeah, I definitely see that as well. I fully agree. On a personal level as a writer, what's your opinion of using social media in this new marketplace? We've obviously uh, mentioned about not really having a brand, but you have got a very strong and engaged following on Twitter. Do you feel in 2021, it's an essential thing to have? No, it's not an essential thing to have. It's a good thing to have if it's good for you. And if you're happy doing it, and if you enjoy it. But I see a lot of people on Twitter, particularly, who don't enjoy it, who are not good at it, who find it stressful and time consuming, and who are not getting any benefit from it, because they think it's going to give something to them that it doesn't have. I mean, what Twitter doesn't do, what social media generally doesn't do, is drive sales. It's not something that that happens. So you get people who go on social media and all they want to do is talk about selling their latest, whatever it is, whether it's a book or some other thing. And it's boring. It's advertising. It's the stuff which when you record things on your TV, you scroll through because it's just crap. And if you don't actually enjoy interacting and being part of a social media community, because actually social is the word that gives it away, then perhaps you shouldn't be doing it at all, because you know, there's no rule that says everybody needs to be on social media. When I joined Twitter, I, I asked Ian Rankin, who was already on there, how he did it, because I didn't really see how Twitter worked. And I thought, you know, what am I supposed to do on there? It's, it's full of people who blog their food. And he said, don't worry about it. Just talk to people. Talk about what you love. Doesn't matter what it is. Ian, he likes to talk about vinyl and whiskey and beer and books. And and he said, you'd be surprised at what happens if you just talk about the things you love on Twitter, because the people who like the things you love will come to you and you will share things and interesting things will come out of that. And he said, do you know what? All my stage and TV contacts have come from Twitter. And I said, that can't be right. And yet, 10 years down the line, I have script doctored a movie for Mike Batt because of a conversation we had on Twitter. I have co-written an opera with Howard Goodall because of a conversation we had on Twitter. I have had so many approaches from theatre and musical and film people and TV people from conversations I've had on Twitter. But what I haven't done or at least what I've done in a very minimal way, but not enough to bore people to death and to turn them off, is to try to sell things. Yeah, sometimes a new book will come out and I'll go, hey, I got a new book. But actually, that isn't really selling things. I think if you are on Twitter and you are yourself as much as it's possible to be, then people will be interested in you 
And then if they are interested in you, then maybe they will be interested in the things that you've done. But it's not the other way around. Nobody ever invited a salesman to a party, but sometimes you meet somebody at a party and you realize that you've got things in common. So Twitter is, is much more like a cocktail party to which you can actually invite anybody you like and you can bar the people that you don't like. And, and that's exactly as it should be. That's great. Thank you. One thing I do want to pick up that you said in the middle there was about your musical writing. And that was something I really wanted to cover stunners and, you know, sort of how was that experience? Because you have a band, Storytime, you know, sort of, uh, like yes. you've been in for, for years. So you've been a lyricist, but the discipline of writing and structuring a musical, how was that? That must have been a very interesting and different challenge for you. Oh, it's always different with everybody you work with. And yes, I've been a musician since I was in my teens and I've had the same band and I, I was writing song lyrics before I was writing books. And I've always enjoyed the idea that narratives can go into different directions and that story and music belongs together. Just a story and illustration belongs together and your stories just, they're volatile. They go off in different directions. They become dancers, they become operas. Chocolat became a ballet at one point. And I thought how fabulous that that happened. And I'd already co-written a couple of short operas with different young composers. And I had usually used one of my story time stories. And these are things that started their lives on Twitter. I've explored them in music with my band and we've got this story time show that hopefully will start up again next year, which is basically stories and music, not exactly opera, but the idea of performing a story with a musical enhancement, with a musical content, with visual content, with an element of performance. To me, all that's very natural. And so getting together with Howard seemed a really natural thing to do. I've loved his work for a long time. We followed each other on Twitter for a long time. And we had a little conversation about pre-Raphaelite women, which became the core for Stunners, which is basically a story about pre-Raphaelite models. And all the characters are female and there aren't any men and the roles of the men are played by women. And it's just marvelous. This was Howard's idea and, uh, and it's great. But uh, yeah, I wrote him the libretto and I rewrote it several times, reshaping it according to what he was producing. And then it premiered in a small way, but I think it was very beautiful and I'd love to go back and work on it. And I think he's, he's putting things in place for us to be able to workshop it and then maybe to take it to larger theatres and to make more of it. That'd be great. But yeah, it's been an interesting yeah. journey because I think that like a lot of writers who, who essentially create in solitude, I quite enjoy working with other people. Yeah. I mean, Ian Rankin's the same. He's in a band. Pretty much every writer I know is, is in a band somewhere or, or has some other form of creation that involves other people. Because actually, creativity shouldn't just be kept to one person sitting in an ivory tower. It's so much nicer to interact with somebody else, somebody that you know and trust and just create something that you would never have done just on your own. A thing I wanted to pick up on was, uh, as you mentioned, Ian Rankin, do you feel that you have a, a, a friend group, a, a group of writing peers? And if so, how has that developed? Do you have almost like a pub group or you know, sort of a, <laughs> a group that you like to see? I wish. Because I live in Yorkshire, and I don't, I, I don't tend to meet other writers unless they're at festivals. And generally, at that point, they're working. And so I found Twitter a particularly good place to, 
to connect with people that I know and that I like, but that I don't see very often. You might meet somebody in the green room at the Edinburgh Festival once a year or so, and then you don't see them again for another year, although, you know, they've got a book out. But on Twitter, you can talk to these people. You can do it every day. And to me, it's become my water cooler. It's where I keep in touch with the people that I like, but I don't see very often because of various geographical limitations. But it's quite nice to, to talk to them and to bounce ideas off them. And sometimes when you're a writer and you have a problem and you've either got writer's block or you've got terrible problems with your publisher, sometimes only another writer will understand that. And so it's quite nice to just interact with somebody on social media and go, oh, I'm having hell with this new draft or my tendonitis is really playing up and, and, and know that the person that you're, you're talking to gets it. And then that's quite nice too. So it gives you not just the illusion of, a friendship group, but an actual point of contact with people, which I think is really important. Yes, and also you've been uh, so good with your uh, YouTube channel for uh, giving advice on writing and uh, engaging with other writers. And you're also the chair of the Society of Authors. Yes. And obviously that's a huge union on helping writers. How did that position come about? And that just seems an amazing position to have. Well, the Society of Authors has permanent staff, but it also has an elected management committee. The management committee oversees a lot of the functions of the society, keeps tabs, takes responsibility for the finance of it, uh, looks at its direction, looks at its strategy, and works with the permanent staff. The chair is voted from the management committee, and I'd been on the management committee for some years, and they voted me chair, and basically my responsibility is mostly to conduct meetings, to keep order where necessary, and sometimes be a spokesperson for the ESOA when the, the president isn't able to do it. But it's all very much about delivering what the membership wants and trying to, to understand how best to serve the membership. So uh, certainly during lockdown, one of the best things I think we did was to provide a virtual festival for members and for other people too, to promote a feeling of community, particularly when a lot of writers were feeling really cut off by lockdown and really needed that sense of belonging to something and being protected. And also we had the contingency fund, which became the emergency fund, which allowed us to, to give relatively small, but I think significant amounts of money to people whose income had been completely cut off by lockdown and who were really struggling. And, and this is something important too. So there's that. And there's also things like having meetings with Amazon and trying to persuade them to have slightly more author-friendly policies and meetings with publishers about contracts and trying to ensure fair treatment of people and to ensure that contracts are, are kept. And all of this is really important. And I think anybody who is on the management committee and anybody can stand to be elected on this gets a really thorough overview of what it is that the SOA does. I think before that, I had no idea of all the things that it did. Now I, I know a little more. Well, I think it's amazing. And I think it's uh, a testament to you and your, how highly you're respected that to get such an elected position, we want Joanne Harris to be our representative when talking to Amazon and big publishers and doing all of this and the faith that they have in your management capabilities. And I just think that's amazing and should be recognized. So for those who weren't aware for the, on the audience who are listening, I just think it's incredible that all the things that you do on top of all of your writing, it's incredible. 
Um, I'm really grateful for the chance to do it. I think it's important. The SOA has helped me so much during my formative years as an author. I just think it's a really good thing to be able to give a little bit of that back. Yeah, I'm glad that you do. I have uh, just two more questions, and thank you so much uh, for your time today. It seems to me that, and you've mentioned this uh, with your answers already, that uh, writing is a continual state of growth and uh, you continue to develop your writing and there are things that you learn as you write each story that you do. Can you think of anything particular in a previous story that you've written that you're now applying to your current Loki book that you're working on at the moment? It's a difficult question. I think I'm always reassessing where I stand and what I do and I'm always learning new things. I'm, I'm not sure if it's anything very specific, but for instance, we've recently had a long conversation about language and the appropriateness of language and the appropriateness of tone. And there are many things being said now that I wouldn't have thought of necessarily 20 years ago, but which I am now applying because not only do people evolve, but readers evolve too. Readers and writers are evolving side by side. And so Something that you might have said in a book or expressed in a certain way in a book 20 odd years ago might now be considered problematic. And, and I think it's quite useful to move with those things and to keep asking yourself, OK, are the things that I did then still appropriate now? And, and if not, how can I change them and how can I be better? I think it's all about trying to be a better writer in one way or another, because anybody who stops and goes, OK, I am now, I have now reached peak fitness as a writer. <laughs> I always mistrust that attitude because <laughs> yes. it usually means that you're about to make the most massive dick of yourself with the next book. <laughs> and my final question is with all the writing that you do and all the advice that you've given, do you find that there's one piece of advice that resonates with you that? helps you when you're writing? Is there one piece of advice that you try and keep in mind if you're struggling at all? Do you mean something that I've been told or something that I've worked out for myself? Either. Okay, I think that the advice that I always give to people is you have to read, you have to give yourself permission to write all the things that I've said on my YouTube channel. With me, the thing that I tend to repeat to myself is it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how much blood you spilt somebody is going to hate this book, somebody is going to criticise this book, somebody is going to call it lazy, even though it was, it was written in heart's blood and somebody is going to say that stuff. You can't be thinking about that somebody. You have to do the best you can and admit that where you are at the moment means that there will always be people who, who might hate you irrationally for no reason at all that you can understand. And this is part of where you are. It took me a long time to figure this one out. And I think authors are always figuring it out because as soon as you reach a certain head above the parapet moment, it is going to happen to you. And it's never nice, but it's also absolutely something that everybody gets. And so I do remind myself of this, particularly when I've got a new book out and I'm eagerly looking at responses online and, and doing all the things that you shouldn't do, but actually in the hope of, of getting the message that you got it out to people right and that you did it properly. Some people will not get it. Some people will not like it, whether they got it or not. End of. Do you get imposter syndrome during any point with uh, <laughs> any of your books where you just go, what am I doing? I can't do God, this. yes. 
I always yeah. get imposter syndrome. Honestly, I'm the worst person at parties because I generally just end up talking to the catering staff. And I still often get this moment. It doesn't matter how prestigious the venue or how welcoming the audience. I very often get the, the conviction that at some point during the questions, some kid is going to stand up in the back row and go, that's not a proper writer. That's Mrs. Harris. She used to teach me French. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess it's just that advice that you uh, tell yourself to get over that is you can't worry about the people that don't believe in you. No. And don't live with you. it. In fact, the best advice I've had on this came from my music teacher, not from anything to do with writing. And yet writing is such a performance that it might as well be. And she says, the only thing you can do is create from the bottom of your heart with maximum sincerity and thoroughness and attention to detail and put it out there into the audience and know that some people will not like it and do it anyway because if you can get that message out to even one person in there and it changes their life or makes their day then you will have done it so you just go I made this for you I love it will you and, and then it's up to the audience, it's up to the readers then to decide how they're going to take it. And that was, I found that, she, she said that to me sometime last year or just before lockdown, because I still take singing lessons because actually I really need them. And, and I thought, you know what, that's pretty good. I hadn't thought of that. I will apply it not just to my singing, which I do reluctantly in the band as part of story time, but also to my writing too. And it felt very intuitively right to feel that way. And it helped. That's great. That's all the time we've got for today, Joanne. Thank you so much uh, for being our guest. And My pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you very okay. much. And that was the real writing process of Joanne Harris. If you'd like to find out more about Jo, you can find all of her information on her website, joanne-harris.co.uk. I do also recommend you follow her on Twitter through her handle at Joanne Chocolat. She's very good. And buy all of her books if you haven't already. They're amazing. Anyway, that's almost all from me. If you're listening to this on or shortly after release day, I hope you've had a lovely Christmas. I hope you have a lot of new books that you're diving into. And that's it for 2021. I'm still back next week, the podcast's still going, but we survived this year, and we found each other. I'm very glad we met. Anyway, I hear some outro music approaching. Yep, here it is. Until next time, my friends, or until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. 
Cause I have this 